Hello, and welcome to the Williamsburg Unitarian Universalists. We are a vibrant liberal religious community that treasures diversity, practices justice, and teaches love and respect for everyone. We grow spiritually through worship, shared learning and service and relationships that go deep. As we say each Sunday, whoever you are, whomever you love, whatever your image of the holy, your presence here is a gift. All are worthy, all are welcome. Good morning. I'm David Hopkinson, your worship associate today. And it's my pleasure to welcome you to the Williamsburg Unitarian Universalists online worship service. Our greeter today is Karen Eversoll. Our other worship leaders today are our minister, the Reverend Laura Horton Ludwig, our director of religious education, Austin Peterson, our choir and music director, Dr. Jamie Bartlett, and our assistant director of music, Dave Robbins. <clears throat> If you'd like to follow along with the order of service, I invite you to visit wuu.org to download a copy. If you're visiting today, we're glad you're here. And we'll have a special breakout group at the end of the service for visitors and newcomers to gather. If you'd like to meet other new folks, as well as some of us who have been around a while, please let us know by typing a quick note into the chat about your preference. <clears throat> if you'd like to sign up for our email list, please fill out our online visitor form at wuu.org. <clears throat> and this Saturday, please join us for a night of classical music with Dave Robbins at this Saturday at 6 p.m. to kick off our week-long Sounds of the Season fundraising event. This fundraising, this fundraiser is being held in lieu of our traditional auction with a few music related prizes up for virtual bidding during the concert and throughout the week. Now we welcome back our WUU choir singing a piece that looks back to the ancient Jewish story of the Garden of Eden. The white British poet Eleanor Parjan wrote the words, and the music is an old Celtic tune. And you might have heard Cat Stevens sing it years ago, Morning Has Broken. Praise 
Again, welcome. We are happy that you have joined us via live stream, audio or video or Zoom. Whether you have come here seeking comfort, encouragement or inspiration, you belong here, you are seen here, even if you are joining by phone and we cannot see you physically. Now I in invite you to join in saying the welcoming words Please, as you say these words, speak them to each other and know that we are connected across the distance. The words are pasted in the Zoom chat. Let's say them in unison, joke, joke. Um, we'll try. Folks on Zoom, we will unmute you so that you can hear each other. Come, Good morning, indeed. All this month, we have been delving into our monthly theme of imagination. Today, we take a look at one product of the human imagination, stories. And in particular, the stories we tell about how the world came to be and we human beings along with it, creation stories. Because these stories matter. They shape how we treat each other. They shape entire societies. In that spirit, I offer a poem to you by Pat Maine Ellis, a gay white poet from Canada. Scientists find universe awash in tiny diamonds. That is the title of the poem taken from a headline. But haven't we always known the shimmer of trees, the shaking of flames, every cloud lined with something. Clean water sings right to the belly, scouring us with its purity. It too is awash with diamonds, so small that trillions could rest on the head of a pin. It is not unwise then to say that the air is close with diamonds, that we breathe diamonds, our lungs hoarding, exchanging, our blood sowing them rich and thick along every course it takes. Does this explain why some of us are so hard? Why some of us shine? Why we are all precious, that we are awash in creation, spumed with diamonds, shot through with beauty that survived the death of stars. And so we worship together. And now wherever you are, would you please join in singing our opening hymn, Earth Was Given as a Garden, which again harks back to the creation story in the book of Genesis.
creatures born of land and born of sea, all created in your image, all to live in harmony. Show again the garden where all life flows fresh and free gently guide your sons and daughters into full maturity teach us how to trust Now please join me in saying the words to light our chalice. <clears throat> if you have a chalice or a candle nearby in your home, please go ahead and light it now. We on the Zoom will spotlight Ben lighting our chalice. Again, we'll unmute you and say the words to follow in unison. We light this chalice. We light this chalice. For the warm love, for the light of for the energy of action, for the harmony of peace. Good morning, everybody. I um I have something so exciting to share with you. Um, some of you know already that I have a particular love for languages, especially dead ones. And my favorite one is ancient Sumerian. And I wanted to share with you just a little bit about um, how you take one of those old pictures and turn it into words that are comprehensible to us. And 
I invite you to um, break out your geology or your geography knowledge. Ancient Sumer was kind of nestled in this breadbasket um, that was between the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers. Because of course, what do you need in order to have a civilization but water and farming? Without that, nothing else can happen. And so I will share with you one of my first ancient Sumerian grammar textbooks. I know you were waiting for this, right? So what you start with is something that looks kind of like a glob. Well, it's 4,000 years old, give it a break. And it's, it's an old brick is what it is. It's, it's a clump of clay that somebody took a stylus that, was, that had kind of a little triangle at the end and made all these marks into, and then it was baked in an oven. And then 4,000 years later, we come along and it's kind of hard to read. So very few people can look at a brick like that and go, oh, I know exactly what that means. So what you do in order to read it, you take that brick and then you make a drawing. You're not done yet. You make that drawing and then you have, you do what's called a transliteration. And you make little, um, you, you use our alphabet in this particular case, if you're translating into English, there's many different processes, but you take it, you make it into English um, letters with a transliteration. And then you go one line over, you do a transcription and then finally, you go over to translation. It takes lots of pages. And so it can end up looking a little like that. One little brick, it can take pages and pages. So translating can be this beautiful, painstaking process. But what it ends up doing is bringing out voices that have been dead for over 4,000 years, which I think is just about one of the coolest things possible. And you know, there's tons of different kinds of things that we have. Um, a lot of them are building dedications or blessings on thresholds so that people walking across thresholds get blessed every time they walk in and out, in and out. And then one of the most important things that we have are stories. And these are the stories that were so important that we were telling them to each other four or 5,000 years ago and we've continued to tell them to each other. And this one story you've probably heard of, it was originally written in ancient Sumerian, it's been written down in Akkadian and in Babylonian, and it's been translated into all these languages. And I'm going to tell you a story of a translation I did of the Epic of Gilgamesh, or in ancient Sumerian, Gilgamesh. Um, and because it's an epic, I'm not going to be able to tell you the entire thing. But this is a snippet um, of the story of Gilgamesh. And Gilgamesh was, we believe, a real life king. And this is part of his story. A long time ago, so long ago that it was almost before nights knew that they would turn into days, there was a king. This king was mightier than any king who had ever lived. 
He was stronger than any man alive, and he was well-loved by his family and his people, and yet the man was miserable. He had killed monsters, conquered strange lands, and still he was unhappy. His name was Gilgamesh, the son of Ninsun, immortal goddess of cows and protector of skin. Gilgamesh was part god and part human and he was mortal. Even before he was born, the gods had doled out everlasting life only to the goddesses and gods and given fleeting life to humankind. Gilgamesh had heard whispers of an old story that once, a very, very long time ago, the gods had given life everlasting to one mortal man, and he was determined to find this secret to immortality. Gilgamesh was so miserable that he left his throne, he left his palaces, his fine robes, his rich kitchens with all their food, his loving family, and he set out to find immortality. He traveled alone, walking for days, piled upon days, until he was alone, caked in dirt, hungry and thirsty. He walked in the heat and in the sun, more miserable than before, chased by the winds until he found the biggest lions that he had ever seen. Gilgamesh was terrified, but he drew out his sword and he killed the lions. He cut off their skins and he made a cloak for his sunburnt shoulders and he ate their meat. Gilgamesh was so lost as he chased the winds that he dug wells that had never been dug and drank water that had never been touched. But still, he was thirsty and hungry. Gilgamesh walked into night never ending. He walked and he walked in total darkness and blindly walked forward and forward and forward for so long that it was almost as if Time couldn't hold him any longer. Finally, there was a glimmer of hope and light arrived to the land where Gilgamesh found his feet. The trees, the trees were made of gemstones, lapis lazuli tree, a carob tree made of agate and hematite, a cedar tree made only of shells, and coral. Amidst this glimmering beauty, he was still untempted to abandon his goal of everlasting life. In the distance, he could see a restaurant. And he charged towards it to bang on the door. Let me inside. The goddess who ran the restaurant had spent so much time and love decorating the place. She didn't want to let this dirty, angry, grimy traveler inside, and she barred the door. She shouted at him, who are you? Why have you come here? Gilgamesh remembered his manners, and he introduced himself to the goddess behind the door. He told her of his fear of death and his quest for life everlasting. He told her he wants to feel the sun on his back and see light with his eyes forever. Shaduri, the great immortal goddess, 
sighed and opened the door. From behind the bar in the restaurant, she warned Gilgamesh of his foolish errand. Shaduri, the great veiled goddess, leaned towards him and said, Gilgamesh, where will you chase the wind? This life everlasting, you will never find it. It is the order of things that all people will die. Gilgamesh, you who are stronger than any man, mightier than any king who has ever lived, well loved by your people for your justice and your wisdom, how can you not see what you must do? Let your belly be full from eating in your glorious dining hall. Let children in a play around in your palaces and love your family. Play, dance, listen to music. Enjoy yourself, Gilgamesh. Laugh every day and be merry. When the goddesses and gods created life for humankind, they also dispensed death. You will not find life everlasting. It is not the order of things. Go home. Go home, Gilgamesh. Go home and dance with the people you love. Eat, drink, and be merry. Gilgamesh didn't hear. He continued his quest for life everlasting. And that is a story for another time. And so one question we might ask of this story is why did this story last for so long? I think it's one of those immortal questions that humans have always had, right? Why are things set up the way that they're set up? And what could we go through that would be so intimidating as to walk for days and nights upon nights to try to find that thing? Maybe it's life everlasting. Maybe it's a magic flute. You know, these stories have survived for so long because they are the immortal questions. That's one of the morals of the Epic of Gilgamesh for me. That and eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. So may you eat, drink, and be merry. Blessings to all. Oh, Austin, thank you so very, very much for bringing that story to life with us. And now I invite you to join in a spirit of meditation, reflection, and prayer. This week, on the steps of the U.S. Capitol, a young Black poet stepped up to the podium and offered words that spoke to our battered spirits in this season. Today, we borrow the words of poet Amanda Gorman that we might take them in more deeply and be refreshed and inspired. Somehow, she says, we weathered and witnessed a nation that isn't broken, but simply unfinished. 
Yes, we are far from polished, far from pristine, but that doesn't mean we are striving to form a union that is perfect. We are striving to forge a union with purpose, to compose a country committed to all cultures, colors, characters, and conditions. And so we lift our gazes not to what stands between us, but what stands before us. We lay down our arms so we can reach out our arms to one another. We seek harm to none and harmony for all. Let the globe, if nothing else, say this is true, that even as we grieved, we grew, that even as we hurt, we hoped, that even as we tired, we tried. We did not feel prepared to be the heirs of such a terrifying hour, but within it we found the power to author a new chapter. We will rebuild, reconcile, and recover, and every known nook of our nation and every corner called our country, our people diverse and beautiful will emerge, battered and beautiful. When day comes, we step out of the shade aflame and unafraid. The new dawn blooms as we free it. For there is always light. If only we're brave enough to see it. If only we're brave enough to be it. Words of Amanda Gorman. And in the spirit of her words, we offer our prayers and good wishes today for our new president, our new vice president, and for their families. May they be safe. May they lead with wisdom, courage, and compassion. And let us also give thanks for the artists that help us meet this moment with grace and strength. On this day, however, we are so mindful of the more than 400,000 people who have died from COVID. We open our hearts to all who mourn on this day. And we send our gratitude to all our healthcare workers and essential workers who care for them, who care for all of us. We send our gratitude to all who are making those vaccines available, blessed be. And also today, very close to home, we lift up our gratitude for everyone who's helped with our winter shelter over these last few days, protecting the most vulnerable members of our community. You are a blessing. And as we continue to hold all these joys, all these sorrows, all these loved ones, I invite you to add your own silent prayers and meditations.
So may it be. Amen and blessed be. Our centering song today draws on a beautiful creation story that has emerged in our own day, a story grounded in science and animated by poetry. It begins with the Big Bang and continues with stars and planets, our planet, giving life to all things. This is a new song by James Underberg, a UU ministry student from New York City. Feel 
Sunday, we make an offering from the bounty that we are blessed to enjoy. We do so in a spirit of generosity and in recognition of our ongoing commitment to serve the world and to share our values. If you are joining us for the first time, please feel free to give if you wish, but also know that your presence here is gift enough. Today's offering goes to our general operating fund, which supports just about everything we do here. <clears throat> if you'd like to give through our or through our website, please visit wuu.org and click on, quote, give online to wuu, unquote. <clears throat> if you'd like to give by text, please text the dollar amount of your gift to 757-500-0000. I'll say that again, 757-500-0688, and follow the prompts from there. Finally, if you prefer to give by check, please mail your check to WUU 3051 Ironbound Road, Williamsburg, Virginia, 23185. Thank you so much. Our offertory music today comes from the rock opera Hedwig and the Angry Inch, written by the white American artists, John Cameron Mitchell and Stephen Trask. Scared, of course, 
Extreme and defiance Thor said I'm gonna kill them all with my hammer Like I killed the giants Zeus said nah You better let me use my body like scissors Like I cut the legs off from whales Dinosaurs and lizards And he wrapped up some bolts And he let out a laugh I'm gonna split him right down the middle Yeah, I'm gonna rip him right in half And the sword
Today's reading uh, is by Walter Wink, a white biblical scholar and nonviolent activist who died in 2012. It comes from an essay he wrote in 1999, and he called it the, the myth of redemptive violence. This, this myth of redemptive violence is the real myth of the modern world. It, and not Judaism or Christianity or Islam, is the dominant religion in our society today. Wink says, when my children were small, we let them log on an unconscionable amount of television. And I became fascinated with the mythic structure of cartoons. Yes, cartoons. Um, I began to examine the structure of cartoons and found the same pattern repeated endlessly. An indestructible hero is doggedly opposed to an irreformable and equally indestructible villain. Nothing can kill the hero, though for the first three quarters of the comic strip or TV show, he, it's really she, he suffers grievously and appears hopelessly doomed. Until miraculously, the hero breaks free, vanquishes the villain, and restores order until the next episode. Nothing finally destroys the villain or prevents his or her reappearance, whether the villain is soundly trounced, jailed, drowned, or shot into outer space. Something about this mythic structure rang familiar. <clears throat> Suddenly I remembered this, this, uh, this cartoon pattern mirrored one of the oldest continually enacted myths in the world. That is the Babylonian creation story called the Enuma Elish from about 1,250 1, BCE. This is the Babylonian creation story. In the beginning, according to the Babylonian myth, Apsu, the father god, and Tiamat, the mother god, give birth to the gods. But the frolicking of the younger gods makes so much noise that the elder gods decide, resolve to kill them so they can sleep. The younger gods uncover the plot before the elder gods put it into action, and the younger gods kill Apsu, the father god. His wife, Tiamat, the dragon of chaos, pledges revenge. Terrified by Tiamat, the rebel gods turn for salvation to their youngest, youngest member, Marduk. He kills Tiamat in a gory, violent battle. He stretches out her corpse full length, and from it creates the cosmos. So in this Babylonian myth, violence is a primordial fact. The simplicity of this story commended it widely, and its basic myth structure spread as far as Syria, Phoenicia, Egypt, Greece, Rome, Germany, Ireland, India, and China. Typically, a male war god residing in the sky 
fight a decisive battle with a female divine being, usually depicted as a monster or dragon residing in the sea or in an abyss, which is, of course, the feminine element. Having vanquished the original enemy by war and murder, the victor fashions a cosmos from the monster's corpse. Cosmic order requires the violent suppression of the feminine and is mirrored, mirrored in the social order by the subjugation, subjection of women to men and of the people to the male ruler. Thank you, David. <clears throat> Thank you so much. This past December, I finally watched Die Hard for the first time. Maybe you've seen it. Bruce Willis stars as a tough cop who gets stuck in the middle of an armed robbery at his wife's corporate holiday party on Christmas Eve, no less. He almost single-handedly manages to foil the evil plans of the delightfully sinister bad guy played by Alan Rickman, otherwise known as Professor Snape in the Harry Potter movies. I had fun seeing Bruce Willis play this under-resourced underdog, working with what he's got and managing to defeat the bad guys while making lots of snarky, funny comments along the way. But at the same time, I could not quite stop thinking of the passage that David just read for us from Walter Wink's essay, The Myth of Redemptive Violence, especially when we got to the last scene in the movie. For most of the movie, Bruce Willis's character has been working with a black cop, Officer Powell, whom he connects with via a radio he steals from one of the bad guys. And in a reflective moment, Officer Powell shares that he's been on desk duty for most of his career ever since he accidentally shot an innocent person, which traumatized him so badly that he could never stand to fire a gun again. And in the movie, it's implied that this is a source of shame or failure. Then in the very last scene, one of the bad guys pops up again and aims his gun at our hero. We hear a gunshot ring out, and it's Officer Powell, who has managed to fire his gun and kill the bad guy, thus saving the day as heroic music swells in the background. It was great to see a Black man on screen playing a heroic character, but it was very disconcerting to watch his story arc end in this supposed triumph that finally he's been able to fire his gun and kill the enemy. There's something very wrong here. When did strength and heroism come to mean the willingness and ability to kill another person? Well, the answer to when is a very long time ago as Walter Wink tells us in his essay about the Babylonian, the Babylonian creation story, which dates back at least 3,200 years, that violent story about the god Marduk, whose great-great-grandmother Tiamat was trying to kill him, only he killed her first, and out of her, her dead body, he created the world. 
there's something wrong here. And I think Walter Wink has put his finger on it. There's something wrong with stories that tell us violence is the nature of things, kill or be killed, dominate or die. This ancient creation story did not just give us movie plot points. It gave our ancient ancestors and still gives to us today a belief system that, as Walter Wink reminds us, justifies the violent suppression of the feminine and supports a society based on the subjection of women to men and people to ruler. This creation story isn't just a story. It has real-life consequences that have hurt generations of real people. Because how many generations has it taken humanity even to begin to unlearn these beliefs? This creation story is not just a story. It's soaked into the deep roots of our culture. And even if we've never heard the story, it has created ways of thinking that have made possible the subjection of indigenous people, black people, and people of color, and every kind of marginalized people in our own history and indeed our own present on this land. Violence as salvation, domination by force as necessary and right, isn't that what we just came through with the assault on the Capitol? Isn't that what drives the white nationalist movements that we are now having to work so hard to undo? The work we are doing today to dismantle white supremacy and every other form of oppression here is at least in part the work of unlearning an old, old story. Reckoning with our American history also means reckoning with these ancient patterns of thought. The creation stories we tell shape the way we treat others, and so it behooves us to be careful about the stories we let into our minds and hearts. Centuries after the Babylonian creation story was written down, the Israelite people who gave us the Jewish scriptures began to tell their own creation stories. They would have known the Enuma Elish, and they told their own creation stories as a deliberate creative response to it. In their imagination, creation was joyful and peaceful. You know the text. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void. That formless void is the element of chaos, which in the Babylonian story is personified by the violent goddess Tiamat. But this chaos in the Israelite imagination is peaceful. There's nothing wrong with it. It is just not yet formed into anything. The earth was a formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that it was good. This is a creation story that can help us, can't it?
You don't have to take it literally. Of course not. This is a story of life emerging from the waters. All life connected to what has come before, connected, whole, and beautiful. This is a story that can help us know ourselves as part of our planet, connected, whole, and beautiful. Nothing over anything else, everything able to thrive together. But that was not the whole of the story the Israelites told. In their creation story, when God created human beings, God created a man first, and only then a woman to be a helper to the man. And God gave them, in the words of the text, gave them dominion. Dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and the cattle, and all the wild animals of the earth. So here again, we see a story about who has power over whom, a story where men are cre- women are created to serve the needs of men, and humanity told by God that they have dominion over every other creature on this earth. And here in our moment... This story of male domination over women and human domination over nature has led us to the brink of disaster. Our world and our hearts are crying out for a new story about how we came to be and how we are to be in relation to this beautiful, hurting planet. And in this moment, We are discovering that we have the power to tell new stories. Thank goodness for the new creation stories that have emerged from the work of science. Astrophysicists who help see ourselves as children of the Big Bang, awash in creation in those beautiful words of Pat Main Ellis, spumed with diamonds shot through with beauty that survived the death of stars. And thank goodness for the evolutionary biologists who help us know we are living Earth, connected to the fish and the birds and all the animals as ancestors and cousins, as family. These are the stories we need right now. Stories that teach us interdependence and sustainability, love and respect, even if those values are not as splashy as the violent battles of ancient myths and contemporary action movies. And I have hope that we are learning to tell these life-giving stories more and more. Even Bruce Willis. In Die Hard, over the course of the movie, we learned that Bruce Willis's character's marriage is on the rocks because his wife has gotten a promotion and he doesn't want to follow her across the country. He's resentful of her success because it means disruption for him. But by the end of the movie, he realizes that love calls him to be there for her, to support her and celebrate her flourishing. That's an ending I think we can call happy. And what a hopeful twist on the bones of an ancient story. In the days and years to come, may we learn to imagine new stories that give life to us and to our children and to our planet 
and all its beings. So may it be and blessed be. Our closing hymn today comes from the Hoopa people whose ancestral lands are in Northwestern California. It's called The Earth is Our Mother and Dave will lead us. Please sing along wherever you are. take care of her the earth is our mother we must take care of her say the words to extinguish the chalice. We invite you at home to blow out your candle at the same time.
and we will paste the words in the Zoom chat. Again, we will attempt to say our closing in unison. We extinguish the light of And I invite you now to reach out your hands and witness to all that connects us. As you go, go in peace and be spreaders of peace. Go in joy and be spreaders of joy. Go in hope and be spreaders of hope. May this be so. Blessed be and amen. <laughs>